0: Today's episode is brought to you by Tarket.
1: There are ways that we can use technology to create these moments of joy that are sometimes easier to find in the physical world when we're, we're seeing it, we're living it, it's not behind a screen.
0: Hi everyone, I'm Amy Devers. I'm Jamie Derringer and this is Clever. In this special Clever Extra, we're talking about consciousness. We know it's a big topic, but we think it's an important one. We're specifically talking about our collective consciousness and the cultural shifts that are affecting it, as well as our unconscious and how our physical space can play a large part in our unconscious perceptions and therefore influence our emotions, choices, and behaviors.
2: Well, it turns out that if we pay close attention to both, we can become consciously aware of how our design choices can enhance our overall well-being as individuals, as communities, and as productive members of society. We brought in two heavyweight experts to help us break down this abstract topic. VP of Brand Marketing for Tarquette, Mousy McDaniel, and Ingrid Vitali, lee founder of The Aesthetics of Joy and author of Joyful. You may remember her from Clever episode 86. So yeah, consciousness.
1: Let's dive in. I'm Mousy McDaniel. I live in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and I work in Georgia and Ohio. I'm the VP of brand and design marketing for Tarquette, and along with more typical efforts within brand and design marketing, we focus a lot of time on thought leadership because we believe in putting the human experience at the center of everything that we do. And if we don't understand the cultural shifts that are taking place, we won't be able to design the best products and services to help create spaces that support happier and healthier people.
3: I'm Ingrid Fattel Lee. I live in Brooklyn, New York, and I work there as well. And I am a designer who studies joy, the feeling of joy, and how we can create more of it in daily life. I do this because joy is, I think, what makes life worth living. And my goal is to help people find and create more moments of it through the design in their lives.
0: So let's just launch right into this idea of consciousness. Let's talk about individual and group consciousness and how this affects us in our daily lives. So I'll ask you, Mousy, can you talk a little bit about how do you identify or classify consciousness?
1: So we really look at consciousness kind of simply about it's the mind's awareness of itself and others, even so big as the world around us, and how we're reacting to that. So, you know, how we're reacting to our own perceived perceptions of ourselves, how we're, um, our social consciousness, how we're kind of interacting with others, and then our spatial consciousness in terms of how we are reacting or interacting with the space around us.
0: And Ingrid, your studies are more about the unconscious. Can you explain a little bit about how that affects us individually and then as a whole as humans?
3: My work relates to emotion, and emotion is interesting because it bridges the unconscious and the conscious. Um, Their emotions are processes that usually start in the unconscious. We're not aware, they move faster, they respond faster than consciousness. Um, so when we find ourselves feeling something, whether it's joy or fear or anxiety or anger, usually that, that bubbles up from somewhere, and it happens faster than our conscious awareness can track. What's interesting to me about that process is that we can experience our emotions consciously. We can experience joy in a conscious way and be very mindful and aware of it. But we can also be subject to things that are happening below the surface that we're not aware of. And so a lot of my work looks at the way that things can stimulate joy without our realizing it, that we can have these little moments in the flow of daily life, uh, which might be caused by seeing something, you know, a bright color that sort of lifts our spirits in a very tiny way that then starts to affect how we behave toward other people. You know, when we think about it as a whole, our collective consciousness, some of these interactions can influence us in a contagious way. So I might see something that lifts my spirits a little bit. Maybe I notice your striped socks, for example, and that makes me smile. And without realizing it, that makes someone else smile because our emotions are so contagious. And all of a sudden, we've started to to spread a kind of consciousness without really realizing it.
2: That is so fascinating because what you're positing is that by consciously influencing our unconscious we can spread joy to each other
3: yes there's a dialogue between the two and yeah. I think there's a lot of focus on mindfulness and paying attention and I think that's really important but I also think by embedding things in our surroundings that can trigger positive emotions in a very simple and fluid way we can start to allow that to happen for other people
2: Wow. Okay, Mousy, in the research that you have done with um you've identified five cultural drivers that affect us as individuals, our relationships with others, and how design may support us in altering our state of consciousness, which ties in to exactly what Ingrid was just saying. Can you briefly outline these five cultural
1: drivers? Sure. So the first one is we call it technology and the happiness paradox. And this is really um, kind of looking at our constant pursuit of achieving happiness can have an unintended side effect of actually making us less happy. So, you know, there's lots of different ways that we compare ourselves in today's society. And this constant strive to achieve Um, a lot of times preconceived notion of what should make me happy or, you know, what kind of success in my work or personal life should I have in order to be happy? And if I haven't achieved those things, then I'm not happy. And so if you're always kind of putting yourself up against this measuring stick, you seemingly fall short So that constant strive to achieve some, you know, defined level of happiness is making us less happy. I completely agree that the pursuit of happiness is making
3: us less happy, and I think that the the distinction between the two, between joy and happiness, can really help us understand why happiness is a broad evaluation of how we feel about our lives over time. And um, as you say, Mousy, it's tied to. Big milestones in life. We often see it as a thing we have to achieve or a thing we have to get to. And then we get to that milestone and then find that the the bar has moved. Right. And that we need to achieve something else to get it. Whereas joy is much simpler and more immediate. It lives in moments. So the way that psychologists define joy is as an intense momentary experience of positive emotion. And we can measure it through direct physical expressions, things like smiling and laughter and a feeling of wanting to jump up and down and... I think that that distinction can be really helpful because if happiness sometimes feels vague and I'm not sure when I'm going to be happy or or what will be enough to make me happy, joy, when we focus on joy, we're just focusing on one or two small moments that are right in front of us. They may last only a few seconds or a few minutes, or maybe if we're very lucky, they can last for hours. But hanging on to those moments, first of all, it brings our attention back into the present. And instead of thinking about what we need to acquire, we really focus on what we can create in the immediate moment that can give us this feeling of joy.
2: So joy leads to happiness, but we need to focus on those fleeting moments of joy rather than that vague milestone of the something out there in the future that we think will make us happy.
3: Right. I mean, the research shows that these small moments of joy start to add up over time. And so um little moments of joy can make us more productive they make us up to 12% more productive according to some studies uh, they make us more resilient they help reduce stress and help protect our cardiovascular system um over the long haul so they can even increase our our longevity um they connect us to other people so through these little moments though we're just experiencing one at a time and they might see, seem small and easy to overlook they do start to add up to a meaningful experience of of happiness.
2: So we've got now our definitions of joy and happiness and an understanding of the happiness paradox, which is that the pursuit of happiness is actually making us less happy and technology is playing a big role in that. That was the first cultural driver. Mousy, do
1: you want to pick up with the second one that you've identified? Sure. We refer to the second one as the reputation economy. And This is really talking about how today we're kind of living in this climate of fake news and political dissonance, and we're searching um, for ways to connect with others that align with our personal values, because typical areas that previously provided this, like, you know, political party or your family nucleus or your church are becoming just as divided as the rest of society. And so people are really looking to different ways and different things to help kind of fill that void and align um, with their values. And in some ways, brands are stepping in to fill this void. And people are aligning and supporting with brands, not because of only the reputation of big brands that have been around for a long time, but brands who represent what they believe and what they find to be um, important values in the world today. It's so true. I don't know who to trust
2: anymore. And yet I know that we're in a capitalist society. So I want to vote with my dollars. And I am constantly, I don't know, looking for more clues to who is actually doing what they say they will and, and meaning what they say and aligning with true real values as opposed to purpose washing and fake news and political dissonance has Left us all in a really unstable place where we are absolutely trying to find our footing through aligning with what with our personal values. What's the third cultural driver?
1: So the third one is we refer to it as the diversity of one. And this is really thinking about uh, diversity beyond Kind of checking the box or just descriptive demographics that people may have used in the past or companies may have used in the past to identify if they are succeeding in terms of having a diverse workforce and really broadening that to think about, uh, you know, how we're each bringing something different and it, it goes beyond the color of your skin or your heritage, and it includes things like your personal experiences and the way that you think and neurodiversity. And all of those are really important and unique contributions that every individual can bring to the table beyond visible differences. So, you know, it is easier to measure visible differences and look at if we're having um, you know, a diverse group of people working together. But we also need to challenge ourselves to not put everybody in a bucket just because they might look the same um, and really get to know individually how we're all different. And then be inclusive of that environment because just because you have a diverse group of people together does not mean they're really working together. So we have to Work really diligently to be inclusive of all of those voices. They need to feel heard, um, in order to stay, right? So Mm -hmm. if they're just in the room, but they don't feel as though they're being heard and they don't feel as though they have an equal voice at the table, then just the diversity metric on its own is not leading to success. So we have to focus on inclusion and in delivering equity ultimately.
2: And valuing each person's perspective.
1: Absolutely. And the fourth driver? So the fourth one is spatial economics. And this is really talking about advances in transportation and connectivity that allow individuals to live further from city centers. So we've seen vast improvements in technology over the last, you know, really couple of decades. People are wanting to take advantage of that so that they can have a greater work-life flexibility. They don't have to choose where they live because of where their employer may be. They can choose to live where their family is or due to a particular climate that they like or, you know, activities, being surrounded, being able to do the activities that they want to do in that area. And so all of these advances that we're having to keep connectivity via technology is allowing us to live further and further from city centers, which is changing a lot of things in, you know, healthcare systems and workforce and remote work and things like that.
2: Absolutely. It's changing the workplace, but it's also changing the landscape. And it's changing the choices that people can make and still be participating in the economy in the way that they want to.
1: What's the fifth cultural driver? The fifth one is designed for deconstruction. And This is about building for the future. And it means more than just an environmental effort, uh, but really thinking about how we build where we live and work from the individual resources that are going into the building and then thinking all the way through the end of life and where it goes from there. So in this country alone, we put 500 million tons of demolition waste Um, in landfills every year. And so it's a real conscious effort to focus on how are we building the buildings um, for end of life in mind.
0: That is a staggering number. Yeah, that's a really important point to make and something that certainly needs to be addressed in the design community. So now that we've outlined these five cultural drivers, I'd really like to dive into each one individually and get a little bit deeper. Ingrid, in your book, Joyful, you outline a variety of ways that we universally experience joy. And you've already kind of touched on these moments of joy throughout our lives or throughout our day can add up to happiness over time. But I, I'd like for you to just maybe give us a couple of examples of of how others experience joy through design, maybe examples that you've done in your work as a designer or examples that come from your book that you've experienced.
3: Sure. So when I first started studying this question of how objects can bring joy, at first it seems strange because I think a lot of us are, are conditioned to believe that joy comes from within, not from material objects that are around us. But as I started to talk to people and ask them about the things that brought them joy, I noticed that there were certain patterns. And one of the things that seems to bring joy the world over is bright color. And one of my favorite examples of how this can come into play um, to actually influence people on a deeper level is in the city of Tirana, Albania, um, where in the year 2000, they elected a new mayor and the city was struggling. It was rife with corruption and poverty. And one of the things that he did um, with his very limited budget was to paint murals on all of the downtown buildings. And really, it was beyond murals. He covered these buildings with paint, vibrant designs, and they were private buildings, public buildings public buildings, it didn't matter. And at the end of, you know, when this when this painting project really took hold, um, people stopped littering, people started to pay their taxes, the, the shopkeepers started to remove the metal grates from their shopfront windows, saying that the streets felt safer. And even... Just five years later, the number of businesses in Toronto had actually tripled. So color, though it seems like a superficial thing, not only brought people joy, um, but it started to revitalize the whole city around it. Um, There are also examples of the way that nature can do this and just having a little bit more greenery. Um, outside of a housing development, a public housing development can actually reduce the amount of crime substantially that's taking place in, in that building. Um, so studies have been done comparing buildings with lots of greenery and little greenery in very homogenous housing developments. So these buildings are pretty much identical in every other way. And what they found is that um, it can lead to almost a 50% reduction in violent crime, just having a little bit more greenery around around a space. Another thing that can influence us to feel joy and also create deeper effects is um, just having a sense of order in our space. Um, So the designer Hilary Dalk, who works with color and she works in um, prisons and in the healthcare system in the UK, she found that she was recently asked to design a a shower room in a woman's prison. Um, She was told just to do white tiles. And she decided instead to place a band, a thin band of a pinkish colored tile around the middle of the shower room. And six months later, after the project was implemented, she was asked to come back and take a look at it. And she walked in, and the staff was so excited to show her the space. And she said, It looks the same. Looks just like when we put it in. What are you so excited about? And they explained to her that normally the showers are shattered, the tiles are shattered by women who are planning to use them for self-harm attempts or even suicide attempts. And in the shower, nothing had been broken. Um, so just the experience of a little bit of, of color, a little bit of order added to this blank white expanse created a feeling that Um, This was a a real place, a more defined place, not just a sort of blank institutional expanse and gave people um, a sense of pride and dignity and a desire to maintain it as opposed to uh, wanting to destroy it.
2: Oh, my gosh, that is incredibly powerful. And also alarming when I think about how many ways in which we've unconsciously just chosen to design spaces with the cheapest material without any attention to those kinds of things and and put them in fast. And I mean, it just goes to, st- to show how that kind of attention can ripple out and affect so many things. Mousy, I want to talk about that happiness paradox and how it can possibly backfire. I know that our happiness, and especially in the US is declining at a rapid rate, but we're all searching for happiness so hard. What kinds of shifts are contributing to this
1: unhappiness? Sure. So we talked about, um, you know, social media, and the expansion of it being one of the technology elements that is leading to us constantly comparing ourselves to these false perceptions because you're only seeing what other people want you to see, which is normally not what's real life, you know? So it's a very crafted and curated version of their life, um, which may in some ways not even resemble their actual life, but it's what they're choosing to put out there. And so people are believing it. And honestly, even when we know this is a fact and we know this is true, we're still believing it, right? At least in some part. And we're still striving to achieve some level of what you see that other people put out there. One of the other things I think that is contributing in a different way to unhappiness with technology again is that because we're so digitally consumed and we're having relationships behind screens, that it's given us this freedom to say we can be vicious in some ways, you know, where you maybe wouldn't ever say those things or act that way with somebody, if you were telling it to their face or if you were having a conversation with them. But we can kind of turn off even the fact that they're real human beings and we might be affecting them in a great way with our words because we're behind a screen and it's just another name. And so we can even be anonymous. You know, we can hide behind that and Say, you know, really terrible things or unfriend somebody who doesn't, you know, agree with you. And so you, you start to live in this siloed world that can foster hate in a lot of ways. And certainly that, um, ends up being a really negative place that lacks joy and therefore achieving happiness with the person who might be saying the really mean or negative things, and it's certainly also having a very negative consequence to the person who's receiving it.
2: Yeah, it's a dehumanization. But it's so interesting because Ingrid just outlined this very physical, in real life, humanizing effect of putting a pink stripe in in a shower in a prison, or greenery in a workplace. And yet that same thing experienced digitally through social media in a, let's say, idealized Instagram photo can contribute to unhappiness.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, we talk about technology a lot of times in in a really bad way in that um, it's driving all of this negativity. There's some technology that is good, though, you know, and there are um, apps that have been created that can help you be more mindful. And we'll, t- we'll talk about empathy, but empathy is like a muscle and it gets better and stronger the more you actually put it to work. And there are even apps that have been developed to help you practice empathy. Um, help you, you know, practice kind of these joyful nudges. And so there are ways that we can use technology to create these moments of joy that are sometimes, you know, easier to find in the in the physical world when we're we're seeing it, we're living it. It's not behind a screen, um, because you're using more of your senses, you know, in that way. Um, but if we can focus on how technology can work for the good, and it can actually have a positive effect on us as human beings and our human experience. So I think it's really understanding how we use technology in our life so that it's not only the negatives that are coming out of it.
0: Yeah. Ingrid, is there a way to utilize technology to give us more joy in our lives or experience joyful moments through the digital?
3: I've been thinking a lot about this lately. And I think that There is. I think that the typical prescription around technology is you have to do a tech detox, right? And you have to put your phone in a box for a weekend and get away from it. And I think that can be useful at times. It's, It's often useful to reset our behaviors, especially if we feel like we've gotten a little out of control with the scrolling. But I think that what can be more helpful is to start to look at the ways that we're using things, as Massey says, and, and really choose to engage in, in positive ways, as opposed to in ways that are feeding our anxieties or our jealousy. Um, And so, for example, you know, one of the things that I often Tell people to do is something called joy spotting, and you can do this without technology. Um, but it's a it's a simple exercise where you basically go out into the world, whether you're on your commute or you're walking your dog or whatever you're doing, and you tune your senses to notice what is joyful in the world around you. And maybe that's a pop of bright color. Maybe you time your walk to the sunrise or the sunset so you can see that color. Maybe it is a little flower poking up through the sidewalk in a place where it doesn't seem like it belongs whatever it is that catches your eye or your ear or your, your your other senses and just notice that and then share it with someone else and there's research that shows that when we share moments of joy with other people not only does it deepen our relationships with others it, it strengthens our sense of connection and our bonds but it also increases the joy that we feel ourselves and so you know inspired by that I started using the hashtag JoySpotting on my post because I, while I think technologies like Instagram can fuel our jealousy and make us focused on comparing ourselves to others, they can also serve the simple function of allowing us to share those moments of joy – and allowing us to connect with others around that. And so to me, using something like a joy spotting hashtag or, you know, starting to focus on on how you're sharing joy with other people as opposed to, you know, what about your life isn't maybe the way the you want it to be comparing it to someone else's. I think starting to focus our attention in that way can help us use technology to make ourselves feel better.
2: I I love that you said that. And I'm going to follow the joy spotting hashtag. And another way that I've started to engage with social media and the internet is to make myself aware of people who have different opinions than I do, or who come from different experiences or have different backgrounds than I do. I think it's a great place to eavesdrop on that. And in that way, I can learn a little bit more about the people that are around me without having to burden them with educating me or without having to um you know trouble them or make them feel exposed um just by eavesdropping on what they're posting already in a public forum. Mousy, you had talked about diversity, equity, inclusion and then you you also just recently brought up empathy and I'm wondering how all of those things Sort of play together. How can we strengthen that empathy muscle? And why is it so important that we value all the different perspectives that we have on offer to us?
1: Sure. Well, you know, when we shut out these different opinions and create the echo chambers where we're only surrounding ourselves with those who think and act and believe like we do. We talked about the negative extremes that can come from that, right? Because you become very, very siloed and you're surrounded with only those who are just like you. So there's no voice on the other side that says, wait, is this the right thing to do? You know, it's, Mm -hmm. it's really no different than you think about children on a playground. And if one of, if you're only with everyone who's thinking, Oh, it would be a great idea to go do, you know, X, which is not really a great idea. And you don't have anybody there saying, wait, that, that may not be smart. Um, then they're all going to go do it. So you've got, you've got to have different perspectives and you have to surround yourself in that and you have to be, open to it because it's the only way that we learn and grow as human beings. You know, if you're not open to learning something new and you only, you think, oh, I know it all, you're not going to grow anymore. Mm -hmm. And the world continues to grow and change, right? So change is happening every day and all around us. And the way that we can better adapt to change is by trying to understand The only way to do that, I think, is to seek an understanding. It doesn't mean you have to change your beliefs. It doesn't mean you have to agree. Um, But you can seek to understand. And sometimes that may reinforce the opinion that you started with, but it at least should make you think about it. Like I said, if we don't do that, we're missing out on so much, and there are so many negative consequences that can come from it. However, when we open ourselves up to it, we become you know much more creative we are seeing things in a new light and um you miss you just might surprise yourself you know with how you interpret something or how you think about something if you really take the time to understand it from someone else's perspective i
0: absolutely agree with that i think diversity is incredibly important there is, however, this element of humanity too. I mean, yes, we're all diverse. We have different opinions, different backgrounds, but there's there's also the, a universal fact that we're all human beings. There are primitive or unconscious things that link us together. And one of those things is our experience of joy. Ingrid, can you talk a little bit about this universal experience of joy and how it creates either a group of, consciousness or a sense of oneness?
3: I think I've always been interested in universals. And when I was starting to try to understand joy and this feeling of joy, one one of the things that I found was that joy is one of six primary emotions that everyone around the world expresses automatically in the same way. Um, Of course, we have, you know, cultural differences, but underneath um, there is a sort of biological response um, that these six primary emotions and the others include surprise and anger, fear, disgust, and sadness. Um, so joy is the only positive one of those primary emotions. You know, the way that researchers know this is that they went out to civilizations that are not connected to Um, the rest of society, right? Um, They've been isolated for a long time, and they've asked them about different situations and asked them what face they would make. And so we know that um, on a a deep level, these emotions, that we, we feel them the same way. In terms of the kinds of things that can elicit joy, those also can be universal. And so when I started asking people about the things and places that brought them joy, I noticed that, of course, there are certain things that are personal things like, you know, maybe the wallpaper in your grandmother's kitchen or um, that t shirt from a concert that you're partner won't throw out even after 10 years and it's super ratty, but it just brings them joy so they don't want to get rid of it. We all have things like that that are personal. And then we all have things that are related to our culture. Maybe it's a sports team we root for or a food we love and those are cultural joys. But underneath it all, there are certain things that we all find joy in no matter what. And those are things like, um, I mentioned bright color, things that float and fly, round shapes often bring joy. We see that the world over. Also symmetrical shapes and repeating patterns, um, a sense of abundance and multiplicity. So there are certain attributes that we find that seem to stimulate joy. And part of the reason is that these things were often predictors of things that would enhance or increase our survival, right? So a sense of abundance connects to a feeling of lushness. And when we find lushness in an environment, Environment, it suggests to us that that environment can sustain life. Um, same thing when we see things that are symmetrical. They often are indicators of life or the presence of life because in nature we, we don't often see symmetry unless it's connected to life. When we see these things, when we realize that though we're all different, And we all have different personalities and and different attributes. But underneath it all, there are certain things that are hardwired into us to bring joy. To me, there's a, a real sense of connection that comes from that. And it's a common ground that we can use. I think, to surmount some of these superficial divides. So yes, we can acknowledge our differences and recognize that we need those differences, but we can also recognize that even underneath all those differences, there's something about all of us that is connected to this history, this ancestry that is much deeper.
0: Yeah, and that brings me to the the next cultural driver, which is spatial economics, because if you think about these unconscious or very pure emotions that we have. And we're if we all experience those emotions, and there are ways for us to implement things in our surroundings that elicit those emotions, and everybody feels that, you know, there's just like unconscious joy that is experienced by the group. When you think about spatial economics and sensory experiences, um, could you talk Ingrid a little bit about how our senses are connected to our to space and um things like noise, color, light, etc?
3: Well, our senses are kind of like the gateway to our our minds and our emotions, and I think we undervalue them a lot. Western society places a strong divide between mind and body, right? We got that from Descartes, and we've been living with it ever since. Mm -hmm. And that divide, I think we're starting to close that, certainly in the health space where we're starting to understand that, for example— physical conditions can often be influenced by the mind or that a placebo, for example, which is an entirely mental phenomenon, can actually have real impact on the body. Um, So we're starting to understand that in the healthcare space. um, But I think we still have a ways to go in starting to understand that our minds, our knowledge, the way that we understand the world is much more embodied than we ever thought. So, for example, um, moving up upward in space, you know, there's, there's studies that show that when we move physically upward, we go up a flight of stairs, as simple as that, we just go up a flight of stairs, that that actually can change the way that we think conceptually. We don't even have to have a view. It's not like we're, you know, looking down from above and that's what triggers this feeling of... Uh, zooming out. But when we do that, when we go up a flight of stairs, we are more likely to focus on the big picture. We're less likely to get bogged down in the details of of a story or an issue. So that's fascinating to me that it's our sense of vision, our sense of touch, our our sense of hearing, but also some of these less known senses, our sense of proprioception, our sense of balance. Um, Those things can also influence the way that we think and the way that we interact. And you know, when you think about the typical work environment, for example, the senses are really ignored. Recently, research has been done to try to understand what the effects are of this, and it's very telling. Um, So in this particular study, Um, researchers put people into two kinds of work environments. One was lean, which is the kind of minimalist, gray, dull work environment that most of us are used to, and then also put people into uh, what they called an enriched environment. And this had plants and art and much more sensory stimulation. And what they found is that people were 15% more productive in the enriched environment. If you let people move some of those things around, you give them a little bit of control over it, they get even more productive. Productive. They're 32% more productive than in a lean work environment. So I think we know that our senses are influencing the, the way that we are processing our environment. They're influencing the way that we are processing the abstract ideas that come into our heads. And when we ignore them, when we think that we're just sort of a mind that is detached from the body, that is detached from the senses, I think we lose out on – not only productivity and not only joy, but a lot of the power of what can happen when we think in a more embodied way.
2: Mousy, when it comes to the workplace, what are some other things that are affecting happiness? And just how, how devastating is unhappiness in the workplace in terms of productivity and in terms of dollars? I mean, why is it so important that we look at this?
1: Well... Lost work can end up costing the u s. between four hundred and fifty and five hundred and fifty billion dollars a year. Um, so you know when you look at the reasons that people are are not able to work, so it's a really important thing, and we can't underestimate um, how much your state of mind and your your emotions and your feelings affect your productivity at work. You know, research has shown that when a person is experiencing joy or they've achieved, you know, a state of happiness, they can be 20% more productive during the day. So if you think about this over the course of a week, and if we, you know, said, gosh, if I'm 20% more productive, could that maybe mean that I'm getting my work done in 90% of the time. And people are working more than ever before. So if we say you're working a 50 hour work week, that could equate to, you know, five per, five additional hours that you get back in the day to spend that time doing things that bring you joy, doing things that you choose to do. And so when you think about it like that, and it really amounts up to better productivity, more creative. You become 15% more creative. It's benefiting everybody. It's benefiting those around you. You have healthier relationships. It's benefiting yourself because you're getting that time back to focus on things that you want to do. Um, and it's benefiting your employer. But it's benefiting
2: you not just because you get that time back, but I know that I feel so much better when I've accomplished what I set out to do and I'm not burdened by a sense of ineffectiveness or not motivated. And when I look back on my day and I was productive and creative, that adds to my overall satisfaction, which then adds to my home life satisfaction, because I'm nicer (laughs) and happier with the people in my, you know, personal relationships. And it just, it it seems to affect everything. But in a very real way, it also helps the employer retain talent, retain workers, because they're not uh, shifting and moving around, which is also very expensive.
1: Absolutely. We talk about, you know, work life flexibility. And, It's because what you said about if, you know, if I'm happier at work, I'm happier at home. Or if I'm happier at home, I'm happier at work. We don't distinguish our life that way anymore. You know, Um, because we're so connected, we rarely turn off. And only 23% of Americans are even taking the vacation that's offered To them today. And of that, only like 26% are even disconnecting when they are on vacation. So we live in this world where we're constantly connected and we're always on. And so finding ways to be flexible throughout the day, because personal life doesn't just happen outside of the hours of, you know, eight to six, your personal life is always on. With you, and more and more and more, your work life is not only happening then. So they really are integrated, and our emotions then feed seamlessly across one into the other. So it's even more important that we find ways to appreciate joy and experience joy because everyone really does benefit when we do that. And there are a lot of things that we can do as individuals. Uh, Throughout the day, uh, we kind of call them like happy nudges or joyful nudges um, that you can do on your own, um, because it's not always, you know, up to somebody else to provide those things for you. There are things that you can choose to do. And it's not about saying, I choose to be happy, therefore I'm happy, (laughs) you know, but it is about choosing to do the things that can bring joy into your life. Those happy nudges sound like really
2: like we need to hear what those are. Can you give us <laughs> some examples? Because that's real good. <laughs> yes.
1: And I would encourage you guys to try it as you're listening to this. So one of my favorite ones is the power pose. So if you think about standing up like Wonder Woman and, you know, your feet kind of hip width apart and you hands on your hips with your elbows out and your chest high. So think about you're just standing up like Wonder Woman. If you stand in a power pose like that for just two minutes, science has shown that testosterone, which is the dominance hormone, increases by 20%. And cortisol, which is the stress hormone, and it also has some other negative side effects for women especially, decreases by 15% just by standing like that for two minutes. And you don't need any special accommodations to be able to do it. Things like uh, meditation pods or napping pods, even in the workplace, listening to music, listening to music can actually induce a trance like state that is very relaxing to the mind and can kind of take you to another state of consciousness. So listening to music can be really beneficial. There are things like reading is very beneficial. The psilocybin, which is uh, actually a drug found in um, psychedelic mushrooms, but it's been shown that one dose of that can have positive side effects for up to 14 months. So, you know, I mean, that might be a more uh, (laughs) happy nudge on the, the outskirts of the mainstream, but there are so many things that we can do. To find joy and to find happiness, and we don't need to ask permission to do those things. We can do them in their daily lives. Pets are another one um, that have been shown to bring a lot of joy to people, and you'll see more and more workplaces that are opening their doors to um, having pets in the workplace because it, they bring a sense of, of comfort and joy. I love it, yeah, so these are definitely things
0: we can do or surround ourselves with, but there's also the idea of creating environments like offering napping pods or meditation rooms at work for your employees, but then it gets into even broader architecture, so you mentioned in the our initial conversation about spaces that are just completely. Um, unused or end of life for spaces. And we see that more and more as you walk around, there's malls that are closing, there's strip malls where there's, you know, 50% of the stores are for rent. Um, You know, that just looks sad. So it kind of just makes everybody feel sad. So I'm wondering, um, Mousy and Ingrid, both of you maybe could offer some potential solutions to managing this kind of situation where there's empty storefronts or unused parking lots. What can be done to inject more joy into those spaces to increase our overall happiness in in our surroundings?
1: So we've seen examples of uh, shopping malls that have been Abandoned and shut down, be turned into apartment complexes. So the shops have been turned into mini apartments, and there's a a collective kind of thriving center in the middle where people can, you know, come together, and it's a kind of a community environment. So we've seen that happen. We've seen buildings be reconstructed to almost be dorm-like environments where you kind of rent a room, but you have a very shared common space. And uh, there's a development in, in California that has like a two-year waiting list to get into it. And there are so many other positive things that come from that community environment. We also have seen examples of uh, parking lots being turned into green spaces, and places where you have mixed use environments. So you have um, cafes and you have retail and you have doctor's offices, you have grocery stores, you have all of these things um, kind of taking the place of what used to be a strip mall. And then the parking lot is turned into a communal space and you might have outdoor yoga happening in one of those green spaces or just an open space for you know children to play and people to hang out. Um, so there are a lot of things that we can do with these shells to where we can kind of bring them back to life. And sometimes you'll even see them be brought back where some of the remnants are left exposed. So it's kind of an an, an understanding of what it once was. And um, you're infusing that with you know, positive color or light or things. So it's like kind of this old and new mixing together to create a really interesting energy. So we shouldn't look at those abandoned things as, you know, leaving them to be gray and, and think about the destruction, but really focus on how we can uh, bring them back to life and create very positive and meaningful spaces for the communities that surround them. I think the only thing I'd add is um, because I think that that
3: all makes so much sense. I think what really speaks to me about what Mousy's saying is the idea that we can use some of these as third places, because I think that's something that we're really lacking um, and that a lot of communities are lacking, that you have home and work and you really have nowhere else to meet and convene. And to come back to something Massey pointed out earlier is that you know a lot of our traditional institutions, um, such as Organized Religion... As we become more secular, we don't have those kinds of spaces or communities. And so the need for these kinds of um, third places is rising. I think um, a successful example you can look at in New York is the High Line, which, of course, is an outdoor third place. But I think it, it, um, it really does function as a third place for the community it's in. And, you know, this is taking a disused rail line. Um, which sort of had a a hulking and very forbidding aspect to it. And, um, noticing that this place had sprouted a natural garden on it, and actually turning that into a garden and a park that's accessible to people um, that people can use, and and just as Massey said, there's a lot of the original infrastructure that's retained. Um, so the the tracks in some places are retained, and there are chairs that slide over them um, to give them a kind of joyful aspect. So I think sometimes we can take these structural elements that are um, that were there for industrial purposes or for some other purpose, and use them in joyful ways by thinking a little bit like a kid and thinking about what would be fun, like what would be <laughs> playful for us to do in this space, and how could we take this dull old infrastructure and turn it into something that actually is a joy for the community.
0: And when you talk about structural elements, I mean, approaching this from injecting more joy into people's lives, can you talk a little bit about shapes or colors? Um, And I know in your book, you talk a little bit about the the element of discovery. How how does that alter or perceive the way that we experience space? and, And what can be done to bring more joy through color and shape?
3: So I mentioned bright colors are something that are considered universally joyful. We see them in every festival around the world. If you look at children's drawings, um, studies show that children typically use bright colors when they're representing a, a joyful scene. And then when it's an angry or an unhappy scene, they use black and gray and brown um, so we know that color can be one way to do this. And of course, the man-made environment tends toward the grayer, duller side of things. So I think an intentional use of color can bring a lot of joy into some of these faces. I think also um, shape is another big one um, where... You know, our our man made world is very rectilinear. Um, And if you look at nature, it tends to have a greater diversity of shapes. And one of the interesting things about this is that when neuroscientists look at the way that we react to angular objects and to round ones in an fMRI machine, what they find is that when we look at angular objects, a part of the brain called the amygdala associated in part with fear and anxiety lights up. But when we look at curves and we look at round objects, um, and it's just the same objects, right? It's it's an angular sofa and a round sofa, an angular bowl. Um, I don't know who makes angular bowls, (laughs) but you look at an angular bowl and a round bowl, um, and the same thing happens. So it, it it lights up a part of the brain called the amygdala, associated in part with fear and anxiety, and this means that what's basically happening is we have an unconscious sense of caution around these angular shapes that we don't have around curves. Curves set us at ease, and so you know you look at childhood, and childhood is filled with round objects, balls, and bubbles, and balloons, and hula hoops, and merry-go-rounds and the game of Ring Around the Rosie. We see circles and spheres everywhere in childhood. Um, But I think the reason is that it promotes this sense of exploration and discovery. When we know that our environment is safe on this unconscious level, we can be free to go out and explore and play and try new things. Um, And that sense of ease, I think, opens us up in a lot of ways. It opens us up to unexpected interactions. It opens us up to connecting with other people. It puts us in a mindset to be um, more broad-minded and flexible. And so even at the level of starting to you know, re-examine these spaces that were built with none of this consciousness in mind and start to bring in some of these colors and shapes without necessarily feeling like a, a kindergarten. You don't have to use all primary colors and throw in a bunch of beanbag chairs, but by starting to incorporate circles into surface treatments, for example, or a polka dot um, pattern on a, on a floor or um, just starting to bring in a few key colors, few key pops of color. These things can start to radically transform these environments from feeling like sterile, um, dull spaces to feeling like spaces that are alive and are, are there to, to feed our, our joy and our, and our discovery.
2: I love everything about what you just said. And even back to what we talked about before, these unused spaces that can become a third place or that can be revitalized in some way, but still sort of reference what they used to be like, it's not a complete erasure or destruction of what they used to be. Also, I find brings me joy because it gives me a sense of there's a rootedness in heritage and time. So if I can see that the High Line used to be a railway and it's not some brand new construction, then I don't feel like the world is constantly being erased and replaced. I don't know if that makes sense. And we haven't really talked too much (laughs) about it. But I do think like not erasing everything is part of what helps us feel like the world is safe. And Mousy, I want to get your thoughts on what physical changes you think can be made to architecture and interiors that can have a long lasting shift in our terms of our experience of joy, happiness, well-being and productivity.
1: You know, within spaces, I think one of the most important things to remember as we're designing space is that. We're trying to provide these comforts equitably and because they're not the same for everyone. And while Ingrid talks about universal joys and we should pay attention to those and incorporate as, as many of those as we can. There are other things that, that are individual and so we should have a spectrum of this, of these things and we don't look to ever be prescriptive in what we're um, talking about or what we're suggesting, but that we are inclusive of an, engaging several of the different things, right? So it's not a one size fits all type of approach uh, because people come to work with all different kinds of needs and we have to make sure that they're all represented in the space. So, um, you know, you could have experience driven spaces where we're making spaces really support the inhabitants to have a better mindset or get into one when they've left, it spaces that are um, authentic and genuine and feel welcoming. So, you know, these round shapes and designs in furniture, a workspace doesn't have to be what you typically think of as a, a desk and a chair. Um, a workspace can be couches and loungers, you know, on an area rug in, in a space and you can be productive And it can really encourage more collaboration and more freedom of thought when you're in a very relaxed environment like that versus sitting around a large conference table trying to have a brainstorming session. So we really need to be thinking about how we have different spaces for the different types of work that need to to happen. So you have spaces um, and we're not just talking about quiet spaces versus collaborative spaces. We're talking about relaxed spaces, um, informal spaces that, you know, encourage people to come together in, in a kitchen environment. That's not just kitchen as a backup house, but the kitchen's integrated in an open environment. So, um, it, it's communally bringing people together to share their experiences at work. So, All of these things, you know, in addition to like the napping pods or the meditation areas, are things that we should be doing to infuse happiness for individuals or joy for individuals and the way that they are interacting with those around them.
2: Well. I think we've done a lot here to help pollinate joy throughout the the world and the workplace. Mousy, do you have a a project
1: or something that you'd like our listeners to know about that we can look into? Sure. Well, actually, anyone who might be in the New York area, at the end of this month on October 30th, we have our grand opening of our new uh, showroom in New York, and we're actually going to be doing um, a talk, and we have an exhibit on circular design there, so really thinking about um, you know how we're building our spaces and material—a uh, circular materials study. So you know we welcome people to come uh, to that, and uh, you can find us on the web at tarkeatna.com. Our social handle is Tarket Contract, and uh, keep an eye out for additional work that we're really excited about. Um, right now we've partnered with a design museum on equity, diversity and inclusion work. They've just opened the first we Design exhibit in Boston that is free and open to the public that it explores diversity in um, design, and it has a historical view. It has over 50 personal experiences of individuals and what their journey has been um, in this space. And we're also partnering with design intelligence and IIDA to look at how we can further the discussion in the area of diversity, inclusion, and design um, within the interiors space.
2: And Ingrid, how about you? What's a
1: a
3: project or uh, some work you'd like our listeners to know about? Well, I'm really excited. I just launched something new and free called The Joy Makeover, and it is a two-week program designed to help you find joy in pretty much every aspect of your life. Um, It includes interviews with 11 experts in topics ranging from your work to your technology, um, food and style, creativity, and um, it comes with a 25-page downloadable workbook, um, which includes tips on um, how to find more joy, how to create it, um, insights from the interviews, and checklists. Um, I love workbooks, so it was really fun to make this. Um, and it's all free at thejoymakeover.com. Fantastic.
2: Thank you both so much for this conversation. I feel more joyful already.
0: I'm going to Wonder Woman stance like every morning now. <laughs>
2: yeah.
0: Awesome. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Hey, thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed that conversation. To find out more about Tarquettes and Ingrid's work and research, read the show notes. Either click the link in the details of this episode on your podcast app or go to cleverpodcast.com where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Subscribe to Clever on Apple Podcasts or Google Play or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you would please do us a favor, rate and review it. It really does help other people find us.
0: We also love to chat with you on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Clever Podcast, and we would love to hear what you think about this episode and how you feel space and consciousness are intertwined. Hit us up. Clever is created, produced, and hosted by us, Amy Devers and Jamie Derringer, also known as 2VDE Media, with editing by Rich Straffolino and music by L1011. Clever is proudly distributed by Design Milk.